This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. This morning, we are going to share in a special meal. We often call it the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. There are passages in Scripture that call it by a number of different names. And this morning, I want to consider one specific name that is used for this commemorative meal, and that is communion. Now, some may shy away from that term because it's most often associated with the Catholic Church and some unbiblical ideas about the bread and juice. But that term communion uh, actually comes from Scripture. Uh, Like the terms Lord's Table and Lord's Supper, it comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to ask you to turn there with me, if you would. Uh, join me specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to note the use of this term and see what we can learn about the significance of the term. And I hope that after the message this morning, uh, that when you hear this term as it's applied to this table, uh, that there will be, there will be a deeper, deeper meaning for that for you. Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talking about the Israelite nation. He talks about their wanderings in the wilderness. He talks about their many failings. He tells the Corinthians that all these things have been recorded in Scripture for our instruction so that we need not make the same sinful mistakes that they did. Paul tells the Corinthians to take heed to themselves, recognizing that they too will be tempted. And then After that, picking up in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, I'll look at some later verses later on in the message, but Paul's clearly using the imagery of the Lord's Supper. Uh, something that they in the early church were certainly familiar with, that they were practicing according to Jesus' command. But the way he speaks about it, it's clear that there's a significance to what he's saying that goes beyond just going through the motions of observing this memorial meal. There's a, a principle, there's something going on here that's deeper and more significant than just the, the outward action. So why use the word communion here? And what can we learn from that? Well, let's pray together, and then we'll consider the answer. Father, I pray for your work in our hearts this morning. I pray that our minds would be clear and ready to receive your truth. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be free from distraction and free from the things of the flesh so that we may receive this truth more than just in our minds, but uh, you would move and change our lives this morning. Lord, your word is powerful, and I pray that today as it goes out, it would do its work in each of our hearts and prepare us to share in this meal together, but more than just that, prepare us to better serve you and live for you in our lives each day. Guide us in this, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is communion? Well, you know the word commune, don't you? A commune uh, is a group of people who, in name at least, share all their possessions and responsibilities equally among each other. 
No one owns their own property or food or possessions. All is shared. What about community? Do you know what community means? Well, uh, though there is a push recently of the idea of online communities, traditionally a community is a specific geographical location and those who live in that area. So it's a group of people that share a geographical location. So you may notice a tie between those terms, both of which are also linked to the word common. Something that is common is something that is shared by many, sometimes even all, so a common misconception or the common cold. What about the word communion? Well, we may not use it often in conversation, uh, but its meaning is tied to all of those other words, those three words that I just mentioned. And we find the specific word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 10 in many other passages. And it's translated throughout Scripture a few different ways. In our English Bible, it is translated communication, communion, distribution, and fellowship. It carries the idea of sharing. So when we talk about communion, the idea is something shared between a group of people or between two individuals. In one sense, it, it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to refer to a meal as communion. There's a reason that we talk about sharing a meal, because often when a meal is shared, it's more than about just everybody eating the same food. Uh, there is a statement being made about something going on that's deeper than that. A meal that is shared often is a picture of friendship, a picture of family, a picture of love. It's often an expression of communion. And this meal, too, is a picture of something shared more than just the fact that we're, we're going to share the same bread and the same juice. It's a picture of something much more significant. So again, I want to read 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and look at the specifics here. What are we talking about sharing? The scripture says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So at this meal, we share the juice. A picture, a reminder of Jesus' blood. It's said of someone else, if I said of someone else in this room, we share the same blood, what would I mean by that? Well, I, yeah, that's right, kinfolk. <laughs> I would, of course, mean that we're in the same bloodline. We're family. So I share blood with a couple of people in this room, my sons, because we are of the same family. And you know the saying, blood is thicker than water. All right, that's the idea. You know, if I say I share, share blood with somebody, that means we're related. We're part of the same family. Well, I know the communion of Christ's blood. His blood has been applied to me. And through his blood, I am a part of his family. I share that communion with him. And if you've come to Christ and you've cast your, him, yourself on his mercy for salvation, then you too know the cleansing of his blood and the communion of that family, the communion of his blood. There's a reason we call each other brother and sister. 
we share the same blood. Paul talks about the power of Christ's work in this respect in Ephesians 2. And there he's talking about the seemingly insurmountable alienation of the Jews and Gentiles. And he says in verses 13 and 14, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So he goes on there and he talks more about this amazing thing that God has brought the Jews and the Gentiles together in Christ, something that many would have considered impossible. But this is this idea that the blood of Christ is bringing together this family. And so I don't think it's a stretch at all I think it's right in line with what Paul is sharing here, that when we think of the communion of the blood of Christ, we're talking about sharing a family. But not only do we share the juice here at this table, we also share the bread, which is a picture of Christ's body. Now, it's probably not hard for those of you who know your Bible to draw the connection here, because Paul talks about this throughout his epistles, the body of Christ. And what is Paul referring to when he uses that term? He's talking about the church. He's saying that in God's grand plan, Christ is in communion with all of those who are his, and that those who are his are in communion with each other, and together they're operating as his body here on earth. Uh, He talks about that in several places, including uh, right here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12. He says in verse 12, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then in verse 27, he says, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. So he goes on in much more detail in that that chapter, but again, you get the idea. So the communion of the blood of Christ, all one family, the communion of the body of Christ, his church that he's brought together, to to serve his purposes here on earth. Of course, these are pictures, these things are pictures of his physical body and his physical blood. But I think there's also a, a spiritual significance here that Paul brings out when he talks about this communion that we need not miss as we share together in this meal. It's a reminder to us of the amazing spiritual truth of our communion, our participation, our fellowship, both with Christ and with those who are Christ's. So what does it mean to get hold of that reality, this idea of communion, the communion that we share in Christ? What does it mean to get a hold of that? What does that mean practically? What is that going to look like in how my life would change Uh, in relation to that truth. I want to consider just a few ways this morning, and this is a a theme that's throughout Scripture, so we won't come close to exhausting it, but several things to consider that I think are especially helpful as we are coming together to share uh, this meal that we call communion, things that ought to be on our mind and heart as we are sharing in this way. First of all, communion means identification, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, again, and I'll read verse 17 as well. 
Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Communion means identification. He's saying we are all the same in this way. Now, identity is a, is a hot topic these days. People are very concerned about what they might be identified with. They're very w- willing to identify with some things, very unwilling to identify with others. It's very important to people, personally. What do I identify with? And we may give people a hard time about some of those things. Some of them are just downright silly. But identification is important. Uh, just for fun, I brought this with me this morning. It's a name tag from back when I used to work at Chick-fil-A. Why did I hold on to it? So I could use it as a sermon illustration at some point. (laughs) But every time I worked a shift there, I was expected to wear this name tag. Uh, I was a Chick-fil-A employee, and I was expected to willingly embrace that identification. Now, the other day I was shopping, and I Uh, Somebody stopped me right as I was coming into the store, and they asked me, do you work here? Um, I'm sorry, but no, I don't work here. There's no problem with that, right? Because I don't. And I'm I'm grateful that I I didn't work at that store. But that's no problem. But if I had been working at Chick-fil-A, and somebody had walked up to the counter, and they had started to ask to order um, and, and give me that information, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't work here. That's a problem, right? There, my job would not have lasted much longer after that because that identification was important. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you know his saving power, you are part of his body. That is part of who you are. It is part of your identity. But how are you wearing that part of your identity? Now this morning, if you take this bread and this cup, as we share that later on, and you eat and drink, doing that is going to do absolutely nothing towards making you a Christian or making you a better Christian. But if you do those things, you are saying by those actions, I am a Christian. When you take that bread and you take that juice, you are... You're looking up to Christ and you're declaring, I'm with him. You're looking around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're saying, I'm with them. This is who I am. I am a Christian. I am identifying myself with Christ. If we're truly in a relationship with Christ, if we're in fellowship with him, then that involves a willingness and an eagerness to identify ourselves with him and with his children. Have you ever met someone who tried to hide their family? You you meet them and you can talk about lots of other things, but they, they try to kind of shield you from knowing anything about their family. It's always sad to me when for one reason or another somebody is ashamed of their family. And it's always sad because that that ought not be so. Uh, We live in a broken world, and uh, there are many reasons that may be true. But it's always heartbreaking to me when that's a part of somebody's identity they're trying to hide away. Is it that way for you when it comes to your family? 
And I don't mean your parents or your siblings. I mean this family, your heavenly father, and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that a part of your identity that you're interested in hiding away? Sometimes embracing your identity as a Christian is easy. For example, this morning, we are gathered together in a service where we're giving honor to Christ. And so for you to give public declaration in this service of the fact that you're a Christian, for you to take that bread and take that juice, it's pretty easy. Nobody's going to look at you sideways because you're saying, I'm a Christian and I'm in a service at a church. Sometimes it's even advantageous to embrace that identity. But at other times, it's downright difficult. But communion means identification for better or for worse. Paul says this in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ." And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, that's that word communion, of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Communion means identification. I am his and he is mine. I am with him in death and suffering as well as in his life and glory. Spiritually, I'm one with Christ in reality. Anyone who is saved is one with Christ spiritually. But we may be called upon to be one with Christ in experience, facing mockery, suffering, even death, for the sake of his name. But that was something that Paul embraced here in Philippians 3. He considered all that he had given up for Christ to be throwing away something that's nothing in order to gain that which is everything. Paul was willing and happy to identify himself with Christ even when he was in prison because of doing so. To the point of death, he identified himself with Christ. Communion means identification. But it also, even as Paul alluded to in Philippians 3, means separation. Now, that may seem like an oxymoron. How can communion mean separation? But let me explain. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we've looked at a few of the verses there as he's talking about the communion of the blood and, and of the body of Christ. And he goes on from those verses that we've already read to, he's talking about the nature of worship, both true and false worship. He's making some allusions to eating food sacrificed to idols, an issue that they had to deal with in that early church, and the symbolism of all that. And ultimately, he's declaring that God is so much greater than some silly meat offered to an idol. But in making that point, he raises something in verse 21 that I think is, is very interesting in relation to this idea of communion. He says, 
This is 1 Corinthians 10, 21. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Why do we hate Benedict Arnold so much? I mean, if you knew somebody who rooted for both the Yankees and the Red Sox, would you hate them for that? Okay, some of you would, all right? But at the end of the day, is it really a crime if somebody roots for two rival teams? All right, some of you said yes, but if you read the law books, it's not a crime, okay? All right, it might be dumb, it might not make any sense, but it's, it's not that big a deal. But everybody knows you can't fight for both sides in a war. There's the British Army, and there's the Colonial Army, and you've got to pick one. They're mutually exclusive. You can't have both. And so loyalty to, dare I say, communion with one side means you can't have loyalty to the other side. And Benedict Arnold, for his own personal uses, decided to ignore all of that and decided to treat the communion, the loyalty to one side, as nothing so that he could get the ends that he wanted. That's why we hate him. But communion draws a circle. And it says, those of us who are in the circle, we're a team, we're together. We're committed to each other, we're sharing with each other, and that can be a beautiful thing. All of us in the circle, we're in communion, we're together. You, you can think of the imagery of a team that's huddled together, ready to go. There, there's a, there's, that, that can be a wonderful thing, but if you think about it, when you draw a circle, there are going to be things that are outside the circle. With Christ and his church, there are things that must be excluded, things from which we must separate. For that communion to be meaningful, there has to be a separation from other things. An easy picture of this is thinking of the marriage vows, forsaking all others. When marriage vows are made, it's not all just about positive communion with each other. Absolutely it is, and it's a wonderful and a beautiful thing, but even built into those very vows, it's saying, as I come into communion with you, that means separation from all others. That means there are certain relationships that are never going to happen again because that is an exclusive thing. The circle has been drawn, and that which is outside the circle must be, that separation needs to be maintained. Paul uses an interesting word picture in 1 Corinthians 5. And it's no secret to anyone who knows their Bible that the church in Corinth had some serious sin problems. And that's much of what Paul is addressing in this first, first uh, epistle to them. But Paul's talking about the sin in the church at Corinth here in 1 Corinthians 5, and he says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, 
not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here too, it's interesting how often Paul does this through this letter. He's tying things in with the imagery and significance of the communion meal. And I do think, from my understanding of history, that the communion meal was really a central part of much of the worship of that early church. It was really a central pillar of what they were doing and a constant reminder to them of the doctrines most central to their faith. But specifically here in 1 Corinthians 5, he uses this picture of bread. Anyone who's done any cooking, especially baking, knows that ingredients are important. If you leave something out, it makes a difference. I learned how important the oil is in making, uh, making bread one time when I was in college. I left it out and I thought, oil? It's pumpkin bread. Do you really need oil? Is it really that important? You can make do. I couldn't make do. It was really bad. But if you leave something out, it's a problem. But also if you add something in that's not meant to be there, that's a problem as well. And Paul uses that imagery here. The bread that Jesus shared with his disciples at that first communion, the Lord's, uh, the, the Last Supper as we call it, was unleavened uh, because it was part of the Passover meal and according to custom, the bread was always unleavened. This morning, the bread that we'll share is unleavened. The juice is unfermented and that's with purpose. There's a meaning behind that. Because it's a picture of the fact that Jesus' body and blood were untainted by sin. He went to his death not because of his own sin, but as a pure sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And that's part of the picture here, and it's an important part of the picture. And Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ. Recognize who you are and what you represent. You are his representation on earth, and you're letting leaven into the unleavened loaf. He uses this imagery saying, you're messing this up because of what you're letting in. Christ is the sinless one, and yet as his representatives, you're carelessly letting sin into your lives and into the church, and it's going to mess up the whole body, and it's going to ruin the picture. A little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump, and the picture is, is ruined. There's a reason that we're often challenged to examine ourselves in conjunction with this meal. A reason that Paul spent time expounding that in 1 Corinthians 11. This is a picture of our communion with Christ and with one another. It's not just what Christ did for us. Absolutely it is. But it's also us declaring something about who we are. And if we come to that with unresolved sin, that gives testimony to an attitude of complacency about the sacrifice of Christ and of our own relationship with him. We are, we're ignoring the fact that this is not just a picture to us, but we are to be a picture to the world. And we're saying, oh, it doesn't matter what kind of picture I am. Christ did it for me. He was perfect. It doesn't really matter how I represent Christ. That's what we say if we come to this. And if we come to our relationship with God in general, 
and don't give attention, serious attention, to the sin that is in our own lives and resolving that uh, immediately and the right way. So communion means separation. Communion also finally means humility. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, if you're following along there, um, Paul has, has said the stuff about not eating of the Lord's table and the table of devils. That was verse 21. Then he says basically in verse 22, basically he, he's, he's, he's telling them, look, we're not going to make God jealous by eating meat that was offered to an idol. He's too great for that. All right, so he says all this about not, not being able to eat the, the Lord's table and, and the table of devils, but he, he basically comes to the conclusion, he says, look, God is greater than all of that. We're not going to provoke God to jealousy by doing this. But then he says in verses 23 and 24, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. What's his point? Well, just because you're allowed doesn't mean you should. In everything you do as a Christian, you want to be considering the potential impact, not just on the name of Christ, not just on your own personal testimony, but also on your fellow Christians. And this is where the communion this way comes in with all of this. Yes, we're talking about our communion with him, but we're also talking about our communion with each other. Paul talks about this in very, with, with very clear language in Philippians 2. He says, Philippians 2, this is beginning in verse 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship, same word, communion of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Pastor has very helpfully spent some time in the past couple of months taking us to Scripture to consider the idea of our unity in Christ. Let me ask you, on a personal level, what is the trait that is most key to experiencing real unity? Well, Paul mentioned it there in Philippians 2. Lowliness of mind or humility. Communion requires humility. Think about it this way. Think of a choir. What needs to be true of a choir for them to truly perform in unity with each other instead of a collection of different voices? Well, the key is that each individual is not doing their own thing, seeking their own recognition or attention, but they're submitting to each other in the group and all together to the director. A good choir member is going to listen to those around them. They're going to carefully follow directions. They're going to be willing to give it their all, but they're also going to be willing to fade back if they're bringing too much attention to themselves. 
choir members, you may correct me on this, but people don't often approach an individual choir member after they sing in a choral number and say, you know, I noticed how well you brought out that tenor part. There was that one section. It was just, it was great job. Someone might comment on the song. They might comment on the choir as a whole. They might even compliment the director. But to a great degree, the choir members lose themselves in the group. And if it's a good choir, that's the way it's going to be. No individual is going to stick out from everybody else. All working together. All giving up the spotlight so that together they can create something beautiful that no one person could ever do. Being part of a choir is a form of communion. And that kind of communion means losing the me in the we. It means humility. It's not all about my personal identity or my skills. It's about the group. We rise and fall together. We rejoice together. We sorrow together. But as long as I'm stuck on myself, I'm never going to be the member of the team that I ought to be. There's a great example of this kind of humble communion that we find in Galatians 2. And there Paul's recounting what happened to him after he came to Christ. Among other things, he talks about heading to Jerusalem and meeting with the Christian leaders there. And keep in mind, these are the, these are the big, big ones. These are the important guys. All right, we're talking about James, uh, the brother of Christ, who became kind of the head pastor of the church there. We're talking about Peter, the Peter, and we're talking about John, the John. And here's this guy who has been persecuting Christians, and he's just recently been saved, and he's coming to Jerusalem to meet with the, the big wigs in the church. But he says in Galatians 2, 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. Same word, communion. That we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. You know what that is? That's humility. These, these guys who had a great deal of authority, a great deal of respect, who had... Uh, known Jesus personally on an intimate level. Here's this upstart seemingly coming from nowhere. And he's coming to meet with them and he's saying, here's the work that God has given me to do. You are reaching out to the Jews. God has called me to reach out to the Gentiles. And many of us would, would think of, of these big, important guys who everybody knows looking down their noses at this guy and saying, who do you think you are to say God's given us this and, and you've got this over here, this different kind of work? Let us be the ones to decide what kind of work you're supposed to be doing. But they are wise enough and they are humble enough to see God is working in this man's life. This is from the Lord. And his ministry might not look like my ministry, but that might be a good thing. God has given us this to pay attention to, and he's given Paul this to pay attention to. And they say, Paul, we're here for you. We're going to give you the right hand of communion. We're sharing in this. We're a team. 
that requires humility. And if we're going to have communion with each other, work together under Christ the way that we ought to, that's going to require humility as well. Now, as we turn our attention to our time at the table, let me ask you, do you know communion with Christ and his church? We're commemorating the gruesome, horrific death of Christ. He didn't undergo all that suffering and shame and pain just as a gesture to say, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. He did all of that because it needed to be done. He did it because our sin is so wicked and awful that there is no other way to pay its penalty. He did it for you because there is no other way for you to deal with your sin than to come to him on his terms, accepting the forgiveness that he offers and turning over your life to him. If you don't know him, then all of this this morning is just going to look like some odd religious rite of some sort. And I want to let you know this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, then today what you need is not this. You don't need to eat some bread and drink some juice and feel better about yourself. What you need is the Savior of whom this is merely a picture For those of you with whom I share a Savior, my blood brothers and sisters, as we share this meal together, I hope you'll turn your attention to the cross of Christ. But I hope you'll also ponder that word communion and all that it represents. And I trust that before God, you'll consider whether in your communion with Christ and his church, you are boldly wearing your identity as one of his, whether you are pure before God, separated from sin, and whether you're exhibiting Christ-like humility. I'd like to lead us in prayer, but I encourage you to make your own prayer to God along those lines even now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you because all of what has gone on this morning, all of the truth that's been shared, all that we've sung about, all that we've done together, is only possible because of the blood of Christ. It's only possible because of the cross. And Father, that very truth humbles us this morning. As we consider the fact that you reached out to those who are so unworthy that Christ gave his life for those who deserve nothing but eternity separated from you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to consider uh, even with fresh eyes this morning, that truth. Help us to recognize the reality of who we are. And Father, I pray that if there are those this morning who do not know Christ as Savior, that this has been so much foolishness to them because it means nothing to those who, have, uh, who do not know life in Christ. And I pray that you would work in their hearts to come to you today that they would not look to religious exercises to gain favor with you, but recognize that it's only by grace, through faith in Christ who died for them. Lord, as we turn your attention to the table that you ordained, help us do it with hearts and minds in the right place. Help us do it worthily, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.